The following program is paid for by Rudy Wealth Management. Good morning and welcome to Paul Rudy's On The Money. You're invited to be part of today's show. Call 356-9397. Opinions and views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. And now, Paul Rudy's On The Money. Good Tuesday morning, everybody. This is Paul Rudy with another edition of Paul Rudy's On The Money radio show. Make a few adjustments here. Um, I have uh, Dr. Fred Gertz with me today. It's Good to be here. Fred and Paul show again, right. just like last time. These kids would stop having babies, children. Yeah. I've been having children and babies, you know. Yeah. They're trying to be careful, not come right. to the studio. So it's just Fred and I. Just glad to have Fred. You could call in with your questions at 217-356-9397 or text us on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line at 351-5357. You can also email your questions at talkwdws.com. It's important to recognize that past performance is not an indication of future results. You should not make any investment decisions without first consulting your own financial advisor and conducting your own research and due diligence. That's pretty practical advice, right. I think. Well, I try to tell people, Fred, we try to give people the right questions to ask, you know, not so much about the answers. We're always happy to answer questions. And, uh, boy, there's a lot of questions in people's minds these days, a lot of bickering uh, and back and forth. Uh, certainly a lot, of, a lot of focus on that. You know, it, it, would, it drives me nuts sometimes when I will hear, you know, see an article, you know, or hear somebody on the news say, well, you know, if this uh, – debt ceiling limit doesn't get solved you know we could lose again our credit rating it could be a disaster for the economy and right. you just want to go back and say well it wasn't a disaster for the economy last time it happened right and uh this time it seems even less uh, worse and if, if people remember back to 2011 it was uh, a big deal in, in those days and the market actually went down a lot beforehand and then came back up so this time i think people either think it's uh not going to happen or if it does happen it's not going to be a major major event and certainly markets seem to have this ability to already price these issues in that's yeah that's the other thing i mean it's not as if not everybody on the planet earth doesn't know that this potential chaos yeah. is, you know has a certain probability of happening and somehow all the overlapping minds have just, just decided collectively well <clears throat> of yeah. course today the market stock market's down maybe one and a half two percent and so maybe right. Who knows what the real reason for that is, but you know we can always try to attribute reasons, and everybody does. Right. But I suspect it's just the some of there's this uh, car sickness, if you will, of the going back and forth right. in politics. Yeah, the idea of, of uh, downgrading the U.S. debt really doesn't make any sense at all because the debt's denominated in dollars, and the U.S. has the ability to produce the dollars. So the the uh, probability of default is almost zero. So uh, again, it may not be a good investment in terms of Inflation and things of that sort, but in terms of actual default, it's not really a. a as far as thing. people's and, and as far as people's four hundred one ks and investments and retirement plans, I mean, that's not. It's not really something you can make an investment policy out of. Right. I mean, is, isn't, in your view, you know, regardless of how you feel about it, you know, politics and yeah. and trying to do your investing centered around, the political wins uh, seems to fail time and time again. Sure. But it's so intuitive, you know, it, it, I think people, it's, it's interesting, we're in an interesting place, and, and we've talked about it a lot, the fact that we're even at near all-time highs after a pandemic is unusual. And then for some reason, every time the stock market goes to all-time highs, which, which it has hit a number of times this yeah. year, it almost seems to be another natural place for people to, you know, kind of drop a marker of, hey, maybe this is a good time to think about yeah. getting out or selling some. Um, and, and, and I think if people just understood throughout history, I mean, since we have this permanent uptrend in both the economy and at least have historically and in the stock market, um, you know, you're going to probably spend one third of, you know, probably one out of three months you're going to be, from an historical standpoint, uh, at least looking at the data, it's it's not an unusual thing to be at all time highs. It's, right. it's, it's more and there's like, always there's always something to worry about. Uh, again, I've, I think it's not uh, necessarily uh, uh, without merit, but there's obviously the chance that interest rates are going to rise, and they probably will over the next couple of years. But it's not going to be a huge right. kind of change. And and I've been hearing uh, uh, the, the crash in the bond market for over uh, twenty years now. Yeah, yeah I mean. 
Yeah, and it, it seems to have intensified year by year. So yeah. it's increasing, you know, this fear of this, and yet here we are with short-term government rates essentially around zero still. Yeah. Um, and the other thing I, I, I read an article, and I'm trying to think who this is from. I don't have it, so I can't attribute it, but uh, it might be from DFA. You know, our friends at Dimensional Fund Advisors. And I could go do, I have the data so I could go replicate this. Um, but it's interesting to look at where the stock market is after it reaches a new all-time high versus after a 20% decline. Now, I think if you ask most people over the next one year or three years or five years, if the market's already down 20%, you know, okay, I'm buying it on sale. So therefore, probably over the next one and three and five years, I might have a better return than if, I pick a month where we're at an all-time high. Right. And the, it's interesting the data shows that this goes back almost 100 years. So after the market hits a new uh, market high, one year later, the average return is 13.9%. Right. Uh, but after a 20% market decline, 11.6%. Now, this doesn't prove anything. It doesn't tell you anything about the future. It's just this intuitive nature uh, that people seem to think if we're at all-time high, somehow we have to discount right. you know, our expected returns. Three years later, after a new market high, 10.5%, and after a 20% market decline after three years on average, up about 99 Right. And then the same thing for five. It t- tightens up 9.6 in favor uh, after a 20% decline, 9, 9.6 versus 9.9. Yeah, not surprisingly, that, that leads to an active strategy. Your momentum strategy is... Uh, you know, buy stocks when they're going up, and that's uh, fine. Uh, but at some point, you have to not buy stocks. Yeah, it, and there is, in fact, um, it's interesting about momentum. And I, I know the folks, you know, these, these are Nobel Prize winners and just geniuses at Dimensional Fund Advisors talk about it quite a bit. There is a momentum uh, impact that is stocks yeah. that are going up, you know, at an increasing rate tend to yeah. keep doing that. What they have, fi- so that has led a lot of people to try to. You know, capture that factor of momentum in their strategies, but it doesn't play out in the real world. In other words, there is momentum. It's just really hard to capture. You know, it's right. hard to create a strategy that reliably captures it. One of the things Dimensional did, though, you know, they do have respect for momentum. So, in all, if not all, most of their mutual funds, you know, they have criteria. You know, if a small stock is no longer small, you know, they, you have to have some point where it can't be in the small cap fund. <laughs> But they let it go a while longer based on momentum. Right. And, and they think that that has helped. Uh, it's not a significant, you know, it's all of these things are always But you're margin. talking, and most of the reasonable active strategies you're talking about, uh, if you're lucky, getting a fraction of a percentage point of oh, uh, it, gain. Uh, but, but in real life, people are talking about, you know, 50% gains. Or, yeah, yeah I, you know, they, I think when people looked at a lot of the momentum data, they had visions of sugar plums in their head. Yeah. And, and it's just like a lot of things. There may be premiums there, but it's, it's always a question of can you capture it? Is, yeah, is, that's the whole thing about uh, some people say, well, uh, if you believe in passive investment, you believe in efficient markets, and clearly markets aren't efficient. Well, that's not the point. The point is can you capture the inefficiencies? And given the lack of knowledge and the cost of doing it, it usually doesn't pay off. In fact, it almost always doesn't pay off. And the world is moving more and more every day towards a passive or what some people may refer to as one form of passive management is just a pure index fund. And certainly the world is moving that way. And yet, like, like you say, I still read the criticisms that the markets, you know, because a lot of if you're a passive manager or a investor, you're, you've probably adopted that concept that the markets are pretty efficient at mm-hmm. discounting. Uh, at least collectively, all the seven or eight billion overlapping mines probably has the best, in, you know, indication of what the current price ought to somewhat be. Yeah. Uh, but I think some people confuse it for the suggestion that efficient market means that prices are always right. Right. And and it's not really that prices are always perfectly right. It's that kind of gets back to can you, if you assume it's not efficient, can you capture it? Yeah. The the, the real question is. Uh, you know, the caption the, the inefficiency is not costless and also it's risky if you make a mistake. You can't make much of a mistake in terms of a passive investment. You're going to get what the market yields. But if you have a great idea and decide to uh, play it out, you may be wrong. And, and the cost there is pretty substantial. And I think there's a, a real risk. You know, what, what I think the whole concept, the light bulb went off for me in 1990 when I went from thinking in active terms like, you know, coming up with strategies to try to do better than the market. 
and I tried about everything, was this, when you really look at, if, if you just take, we highlight one index, like the Standard & Poor's 500 mm -hmm. index, which is just the 500 largest companies in America, publicly traded companies in America, they're owned, you know, the bigger, the market value of a company, and the market value is how many shares are there versus today's price, the more weighting it has. So it is a cap-weighted, what we call a cap-weighted index. So, you know, there are, you know, 10 or 15 of the companies might be 30 or 40 or 50% of the overall price shifting on a day-to-day -day basis. It's just that this idea, and we might have talked, touched upon it a little bit, that majority of stocks really don't earn a return above treasury bills. It always comes down to a handful of stocks. And the risk for the stock pickers are, you know, if, if you just miss one or two of them, you know, you're going to underperform. And the chances of being right, it's such a, you have to be so right yeah. that you're better off just to buy that in. Well, your, your opening caveat, uh, past returns is not a predictor of future returns, obviously, is true. Uh, I didn't start out, just like you, I didn't start out as, uh, I wasn't a, a aggressive, active, but I certainly wasn't uh, passive. And one time, uh, Fidelity said, we're going to let you into the Magellan Fund, uh, and it had been closed, and then and they got rid of the fee. So I thought that was great, and I got into the Magellan Fund, and it went nowhere. So Magellan was the big winner for Peter Lynch yeah. for a long, long time, but the uh, expertise of luck ran out, and being in the Magellan Fund was not a great deal after the initial kind of rise. Do you think it's hard for some people or many people to just to embrace the idea of, uh, you know, you're not likely to outperform, you know, uh, the U.S. stock market, so why not just buy the – it almost seems like uh, it's like I'm giving up. Yeah. But it's really the more sensible, probably based on the data, it's actually the – probably the lo much lower risk move. No, sure. You're giving up. You're giving up to a default that's really pretty pretty favorable. So, again, uh, this doesn't apply to all things in life. If you say I'm going to – going to a career and I don't care what I take because everything will equalize, you're probably going to not do very well. So and some things, uh, being active, being aggressive, being uh, thoughtful is going to give you a lot of uh, a potential. But in terms of investing, uh, it's probably uh, both uh, a little bit egotistical and wrong to say I'm smarter than the, the market. I'm going to beat it. Yeah. In, in fact, you know, and now that you say that, you, th you look at most aspects of life. The harder you work, the more you do, the more you try to get better, yeah. uh, tends to equate, I think, with a larger sense of success. Right. At least I think most of us feel that way. Right. Um, and, and that is so ingrained into our psyche that it almost feels like sometimes giving up. But again, it's not giving up. It's just saying... Eh, chances are those seven billion overlapping <laughs> minds together know more than I might know about that particular yeah. stock or or this particular. Well, there, there, again, it makes sense. like again many many years ago, uh, I never joined an investment club. There were investment clubs where they say, "Well, we have ten people, and each uh, each person will take a segment of the market, and they'll do a lot of work there and decide about uh, utilities versus this versus that, and then we'll do really well." Well, they, they obviously. Uh, some person in an investment club spending a, uh, an hour a month is not going to have much of a leg up on their particular area. But again, it seems like a good idea. Working hard, studying is kind of a thing that usually pays off. But in this case, it almost always doesn't. Um, I want to discuss a little bit David Booth, who's the founder of Dimensional Fund Advisors. He, he's one of my favorite people to ever watch speak. Uh, <laughs> He's a Kansas City guy. He's just kind of dry, you know. I, I, I get his dry humor, but he's really a, 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 a real thinker. And he wrote an article. And then after that, I, wanna, I want people to call in if they feel like calling in. Um, I had this thought this morning, you know, what would you tell your young self about investing? And, it, in a, and I, the reason I, I think I'm going to bring up this next article called Obstacles to Investing is there so many obstacles to investing, particularly when we're younger? But when I go to 401k, uh, you know, when I make a presentation or an annual visit to a 401k plan, and you may have people ranging from 20 years old to 85 years old, uh, they certainly it's not unusual to have dif different mindsets. And almost it's almost corny, but it's it's very, you know, I do it very purposefully. I say, okay. Now, for the next five or ten minutes, I'd like anybody who's been here a long time and is 
past the age of 50 or 60 years old to please if if you if you would open up and talk about what you would have told yourself as a younger as a 20 or 25 year old what would you tell that person and it's really it's really has a lot of impact i found so he has a series of these and the first one is i don't see the point of investing in the first place and i see this a lot you know people you know one is they may focus so much on the risk that they don't see the point um, but i don't think enough people consider the unseen part what, what is the risk if by not investing what is it i'm giving up and what am i leaving on the table and i think the easy answer to that question is you're giving up on that miracle of compounding um, right. by delaying it or putting it off and Albert Einstein called it the eighth power uh, in the, of the eighth wonder of the world. And I think that gets back to when we think of a, in broad terms of the broad U.S. stock market, it's had a return historically of about 10% a year on average. And if it was to continue to do in the future what it has in the past, and that's to be seen, that means on average every seven years that money is going to double. I think that's what it is. Uh, you know, that, and I also think people leave diversification. You know, some people focus so much about risk, about uh, so much on the risk of losing money that they leave off that, you know, if you're diversified, maybe you can, you can right. kind of reduce that risk at the same time. Yeah, the other thing you don't really see it, for example, I think my father is always saying, if I'd only bought that property 20 years ago, how, or, or if I bought farmland at $8,000 an acre, where would I be now? Well, I remember. Maybe it's $15,000 an acre now, but if you put 8000 in the stock market 20 years ago... Uh, it wouldn't even compare. It would be so much higher. Yeah, but you don't see that. It's not as dramatic. as. Well, you know, I've always felt that way about when it, every time I vacation, you know, over the yeah. last 30 or 35 years with the kids, you know, our, thanks to uh, Wells Anderson and his wife, Joanne, and, you know, when I was starting out <laughs> with four children, uh, we probably weren't going to go to Hilton Head, and they had a condominium right there across from the ocean and they were nice enough to basically let old paul mooch it for a week or sometimes two weeks and i think back to that in the very early 80s and now i now that daniel is in john's island south carolina you know we, we think more and go to hilton head more i tell the kids i go gosh you could have bought this whole island for yeah. you know for seemingly next to nothing it right. would have been but it's always a lot more expensive back at that time yeah. you know we all inflation and, and compound interest, that exponential nature of it, I think really plays tricks with our minds uh, yeah. for, for the typical person. I, think yeah, I, I always use the, uh, I probably used it several times, but the, if you watch Antique Roadshow, uh, someone brings on a, a violin they bought or someone gave them in 1940 for $500. Now it's worth 3000 and what a great investment that, that was. And obviously it's uh, a terrible investment, but you don't see the, the lost compounding you might have had there i think of you know uh I've, I've i've said this probably on the radio before and and we have a number of clients that have farmland and never having been a farmer or growing up on a you know i know what one looks like um they're not just big yards they're actually farms <laughs> and um i've said this before but the first 10 or 15 years of you know i always thought well you know, that's basically a money market return. You could do so much better in the stock market. To which they would look at me back like I was, look back at me like I was on a different planet. And now, I, now, as older Paul, I understand that and that conversation never takes place. But I think people are so enamored with farmland because of recent price appreciation over the last five or 10 years. Um, and and I will get into arguments with people. And I know the facts. I've looked up the data. You know, like if I bought... Uh, Farmland in 1960, roughly, when I was born. I was born late 1959. I'm guessing, and I'm going to be wrong on this by maybe as much as a thousand an acre, but I'm guessing land probably would have been 500 to 1500 dollars an acre. But I'm guessing a thousand, fifteen hundred an acre. Uh, and, and if a farmer wants to call me and tell me how <laughs> ridiculous that is, because it was only fifty dollars an acre, I might change my tune. Yeah. But I, I remember looking back. It broad data on farmland and good farmland in the U.S. when I did this. Well, I compare, okay, so you say you bought it for 1000 Today it's worth, say, 12 Just decent, pretty good, high-grade farmland, and maybe it's 15 in some counties and 11 or 10 in others. But, okay, so it's gone up 12-fold. But over that same time, 
if I invested in the S&P 500 over my lifetime, it's 34 times higher, and dividends are, no, it's actually 75 times higher, 74, 75 times higher, just in price. Dividend income alone is up about 30-fold, right. and the cost of living up about nine. Uh, it's not to say farmland's a, a silly, it's, it's probably a great diversifier for a portfolio. I have nothing against it. Uh, I was just drawing the idea right. of compounding and it's probably a circuitous route to talk about compounding in that way, but, but when you think about it, just over my lifetime, a dollar invested in the broad U.S. market is worth 70 or 75 times more. It's, it's pr that's in nominal terms. It's pretty mm -hmm. incredible by itself. And, I, and it strikes me, Fred, I don't know what you think, but you know, it's pretty much my opinion at this point of watching people retire for 38 years that most people <laughs> don't start out with enough money you know, saved to be able to fund a retirement of two to three decades without earning some type of investment return. Sure. And I think that's why, it's so in simplest terms, this idea of not investing when we're younger, uh, you, you're kind of increasing that risk of outliving your money, but you have no idea in your 20s or 30s or maybe even 40s that that's the case. The number two is, I'm too late, the train has left the station. That's kind of an interesting one. Um, I hear that a lot in a variety of ways. Uh, but some people, you know, if they don't have, you know, gobs of money at age 50, they seem to think it's futile. What's the, what's, what, what's the purpose of, of doing that? Um, but I think it's, it's I, don't, you, I don't know what you think, but I think it's safe the stock market tends to go up over time. So I don't think it's ever too late. I mean, well, yes, yeah, you're not going to get that great compounding you could have had. But yeah, the question is, what's your option? And that's just, just going along and... Uh, Arriving at sixty-five with zero is not a very good option either. So you may not you're not going to do as well as if you started twenty years before that. You're going to do a lot better than if you don't do something about your situation. So again, it's going to be more painful. You're probably not going to have the same retirement you might have had. But the alternative to that is pretty pretty bleak. Right. I always tell people, well, you're fifty. You know, in fifteen years you're going to be sixty-five. I think we have a phone call, so I'll, I'll get to that in just a second. Um, but you're going to be 65 in 15 years, wh whether you save or not. And but I do get the psychology behind that. That that's a very common one that I see. I see that we have Eric on line one. I think I know who this Eric Hi. is too. Hello. So how's Neil? By the uh, way, <laughs> your brother pardon? Neil. You have a brother named I Neil. Know me. Of course I do. <laughs> oh, I know everything. I haven't seen you in a long time. Probably since Eastern Illinois. There's like three or four Eric's out there. Yeah, I know. I know. I know you guys were in the frat together yep. and so forth. Anyway, sorry. Here's what uh, that notwithstanding, um, you buy this acre of farm or land or ten acres in 1960. But what you fail to mention is, you know, either you're going to have somebody farm it for you, or you're going to uh, farm it yourself or whatever. And so there's all that income-producing potential there. Plus, if you sure. have a bad year. Yeah, federal bailout, bailout. So it's not just a static thing of of the principal, what that's worth, just any more than dividends. You buy stock and you worry about the price of stock, sure. but is it yeah. also earning for you while while you're holding it? You know, I mean, that's what that's all I wanted to really get to. There. Well, that's so, fair. I mean, that's true and it's fair, and I should have uh, added, made sure that I added that in there. Um, yeah, I don't know whether the returns on uh, farmland are bigger or smaller than dividends. It was the same kind of idea. That, Sure, and, and well, you that, you got, that's up for you guys to work out. See, because <laughs> you're the expert. See, well, I'm just saying that that's a big piece of the puzzle that we you should uh, kind of delve into, perhaps. Yeah, well, I think it's it's a good point. You made a very good point. Thanks, right, Eric. You guys have a great day. Right. Nice talking. All right, to thanks well, for calling in. Now, remember also, if you want to call in and tell listeners what you would have told your younger self. Um, I'd be interested to hear that, um, and, and I can probably anticipate what some of them would be. So if some of you people that have a six or so in front of your age would call and, and, and tell us what you would tell your 25-year-old self from an investing standpoint, I don't need the other life aspect yeah. to get enough of that. Just from a pure investing and savings, um, you know, it can, it can amount to how much I would have saved more or I would have saved differently or invested differently. There's also another thing, which is not investing, but consuming. I think the, the, the way most people are thinking now, it's better to spend on things that produce memories rather than produce uh, uh, items. So I don't think anyone looks back and say, I, I'm really happy because I had a really nice car back in 1972, but they might 
uh, be happy looking back on a trip to Europe or a trip to Hilton Head or whatever it might be. So, again, uh, it's a uh, kind of a telling people what they should like, which isn't something anyone could do, but uh, creating memories probably is much more important than creating uh, fixed sort of uh, items that uh, you, you own. I, I, think, I think most people would agree with that. Um, I know as I get older, I'll be 62 shortly, <clears throat> I was just having a conversation with my wife this morning, you know, you know, I'm at this phase in my career where I've never made more money. Uh, I'm not saying that to impress anybody. Nobody knows what it is. I'm just saying it, you know, relative to my younger Paul. And I've never had less need for it. And so now we're, we're starting to plot and scheme about, well, okay, well, we'll be the sponsors of fun going forward. We have been anyway. But maybe increasingly so, you know, maybe it's a Disney cruise with the grandkids and things like that. Well, it looks like we have a couple of callers. I'm going to take the first one on line one, which is Rick. Hi, Rick. Hello. Yes, sir. Um, what about precious metals? Have you ever figured out, okay, uh, spot gold and spot silver. Right. You can't buy it at that price. All the companies that are right. encouraging us because of inflation yeah, to yeah, protect yeah. our investment uh, dollars, by investing in gold and silver. Well, it costs you money uh, above the spot price when you buy it, and they also charge you money for when you sell it. Right. How much do, How much of an increase do you have to get to make a profit? Well, it's interesting. Some That's of those crazy. Some of those you see, uh, you make a great point. In fact, people would be stunned. Now, you could go to a coin dealer in town I'm sure I could find one where you pay a small premium if you wanted to go buy an ounce of gold or an ounce of silver. You're going to pay a little bit of premium, but it's probably going to be a realistic, sensible, most people could agree to that premium. But when I see these on the, you know, when I see the guys, you know, hawking gold every night on Fox News, that seems to be the channel they like to hawk gold on, uh, it just drives me up the wall because if you look at some of these firms, I'm not going to name them, but some of them, you might find out you're paying 50, 60, 70% premium to buy their gold. Um, and, and after all, if gold was going to be such a great investment, I, mine wouldn't be for sale. I'd be a buyer. I wouldn't be selling you my gold. But I'm just not a big precious metals fan. And I um, think the reason I am is because of the facts. It's, it's, well, it's, not, are, a great, I mean, it's a, not a great return vehicle. Well, there are two different facts. The fact that the caller brought up that they're really uh, it's very expensive to get it out but I think there are ways of getting lower costs I mean you can buy uh, funds and uh, buy gold uh, gold producers things of that sort so if you wanted to just worry about the cost or yes. ways of getting that down but that still didn't solve the problem of uh, the return and the, the real problem is if you really uh, want to have some kind of hedge against inflation having a 2% gold allocation is not going to get you much of anything you have to go in pretty deep, and if you're in pretty deep, you're not diversified, all kinds of bad things can happen. So it's a pretty difficult uh, kind of thing to yeah. maneuver around. Yeah, if someone wants to buy, like, own gold for an inflation head or whatever, you could buy the GLD, uh, GLD, um, and, you know, buy it at almost no spread. It's publicly traded. I'm not promoting the idea. I'm just saying if someone wants to get precious metal ownership, as Fred said, now there's ways that are essentially free. But the point is, you still have the problem of lack of diversity, and, and unless you really go in big, you're not getting much hedge against inflation either. And then if you go in big, you're speculating, you're yeah. not investing because it doesn't produce anything. And right? the other thing, I mean, there, there are gold bugs and there are gold bugs. One is I want to protect against inflation. Uh, the other is I want to protect against Armageddon, and you want to have gold in your cellar or something you can use when you uh, right. when the, the, yeah. the crisis comes. But Having gold in a gold fund is not going to help you very much if uh, if the world's coming to an end. Right. Yep. Right. Anything else, okay, Rick? Thank you. All right. Thanks for the That'll comment. Yeah, thank you. I think he was. I cut him off too early. Right. He's saying, "Have a good day." Um, we're going to go to Bill next. And remember, if you want to call and and tell us what you would tell your, the younger you about investing, I'd be interested to hear that. And I think we have Bill on line two. Bill, are you there? Okay. Yes, sir. Yeah, I'm Bill, and uh, yeah, I'm I'm, a, I'm 81 years old, and what I do tell my son and my grandkids and so forth is save early as you can. It doesn't make any difference how much, but get into a savings habit. Then when you get into a savings habit, 
what will happen over the years is every time you get a pay increase, instead of wanting to go buy that something, you're wanting to increase your investments. I mean, it just it's kind of a natural thing that's happened to me over the years. It's and kind of a self-fulfilling force, isn't it? The more you see success, by you know, see it build up, the more excited you get about it being built up and the more you want to do it. That's right. And then I've followed your advice a couple of times on making sure I use index funds. Now, of all of our investments, index funds have done the best for us. I mean, I've got some single stocks and I've got some other uh, mutual funds, but the, the couple of mutual funds have been the best and ones that you recommended. Well, I'm, I'm glad that worked so, out. Thank you. Oh, yeah. I, we're, we're very comfortable and, you know, just uh, we're not worrying about, about where our next stake's coming from and we don't have any debt. That's the other thing. When you're young, get the hell out of debt as soon as you can. Don't let somebody convince you that you you got to have a mortgage hanging over your head. That, that's money out that you get back in taxes, supposedly, but you only get about a third of it back. And that's the, my, my idea. It's not a good investment. Get out of debt, then put that money away and can be consistent. I think that's yeah. wonderful advice. I've seen it work time and time and time again. And, 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 and what you bring up, Bill, if someone follows your plan, it's also going to put a cap on their spending, as you say. It kind of that that, that lifestyle inflation uh, doesn't get a chance to stick its ugly head up and get you over your skis, because it is a habit. I just remember Ed Charlo from Busey Bank talking about that every. It seems like every time he spoke about paying yourself first, yeah. and I, I I think if there was any of the top ten rules, that's certainly in the top ten rules of how to invest and, and, and end up with a good retirement with sufficient funds to do what you want with who you want. Yeah. Well, the good news, uh, talking to uh, Ryan and David, uh, I'm sorry, that, that you also have something to look forward to, and that is you can stop at some point. You're going to end up in a situation <laughs> where you actually can spend the money without regret. That's true. I mean, that's one way to, you know, to plan a retirement is hire four of your kids. <laughs> <laughs> no, but they're, they're people they advise, I guess, haven't made the switch from the savings mode to the oh uh, for sure yeah. yeah yeah for sure anything else bill um, both don't spend things unnecessarily and uh it just it's just a pleasure to, to know that you're comfortable that's all did you ever feel along your path of savings that you were being too frugal no i, I never did I thought, because i always like for instance so i got a pay increase of X percent, we'll just say it's five percent. Um, I always said to myself, "Well, I've been getting by on the money I'm making. Why do I need to spend that spend that five percent?" But then, on the other hand, instead of putting that full five percent away, I might take four of it and add it to what savings vehicles I was using, and add that one percent to my living expenses. Sort of thing, you know. Yeah, and that just seemed to work real well. I mean, it's worked out real well over the years. Well, I'm glad and, that's the case. And you know what? You, ha I think it was baked in the cake by just following your plan and methodology. I mean, there's there's no downside to it. Well, I just feel we've been very comfortable. You know. Well, I'm glad to hear it, Bill. Well, thanks for calling and sharing your views on these things. All right, uh, have a good day. Again, you can call three five six nine three nine seven, and there, there seems your... to be a, a move but to uh, build that in involuntarily. There, there are uh, laws being considered and actually approved in some places where uh, people that don't have a pension fund are automatically put into some kind of saving vehicle, and where it increases automatically unless you choose uh, not to. So again, there, there's good and bad things about that, but that's uh, a kind of putting this into practice involuntarily to a certain extent or yeah, more, more precisely giving people a nudge to do that. I think, um, and I'll probably implement this because uh, after I looked at my lifetime so far, you know, going from zero to 60 ish um, and, and seeing that a dollar gets mag and if, and frankly, if you reinvested the dividends, I mean, you wouldn't even believe the number. I, if I told you what it was is every grandparent, if it's possible, if they were ever going to do something for a grandchild, 
is if whether it's five hundred dollars or a thousand, not everybody can do it, or ten thousand. If you could just somehow create a mechanism that didn't cost a lot of money, and I think that's coming, and just lockbox, you know, X number of dollars on day one, the day they're born, so to speak, and say you cannot open that box until you're sixty. Um, would go a long way of solving a big retirement problem for a lot of people. If the future has any resemblance to the past, and I, I don't have any reason to think it wouldn't. Right. I don't think risks have gone down, so I don't think returns necessarily should go down, though one never knows. Um, it can certainly be a bumpy ride. Um, but that lifestyle creep that Bill talked about, you know, I think if more people could go into every time they get a raise, if it's a 3% raise and there's somewhere around 3% inflation, you know, yeah, normally you would keep that into your spending stream. I, I think if you could take two of the 3%, put it in increase, maybe up to a point, especially early, until you're maximizing what you could put into a 401k plan, uh, and that will hold back your standard of living probably from a, a real, you know, inflation perspective. But, boy, the, you know, it's, you know, you just don't realize at 25 how quickly 60 or 65 or 75 uh, yeah. is there. Well, the strategy works on both sides, too. When you retire, you have more money, and you're uh, the nut to crack. To, I mean, your lifestyle is going to be lower than it otherwise would be, so you're, you're winning on both sides if it's something you can tolerate. What's your what's your uh, your take on – when we study the data, it looks like people through retirement kind of – spend a little less than the inflation rate right. per year, about 1% less. And some people call it a smile. It kind of goes down for most of your retirement yeah. from a real inflation-adjusted basis. And then maybe uptick towards the end because of medical costs. Um, what's your sense of that just from your personal is that experience? Is, well, I, I think that to, uh, uh, obviously a lot of things go down. You, you're not paying uh, – uh, you're not saving as much when you retire. Secondly, you're not uh, uh, putting, you're not paying uh, tax on on some of your income. You might have paid tax otherwise. So again, I think there's some advantage to that side. And again, uh, people may have some ambitious plans about uh, you know seeing the world and things of that sort. It may cost more, but if they live the same way, I think expenses probably actually go down. Yeah, I have found, uh, you know, and again, almost 40 years of watching people retire. At least in this area, you know, uh, you know, it's it's biased because it's you know, it's, it's, it's geographically biased, I guess, because I I don't have a large number of clients outside of the area. I, more and more as people retire, but um, I, I it, to me, if I had to make one observation, would be that people generally, even if they're able to, don't increase their standard of living the day they go into retirement right. just because they could. I find it fascinating. If if you would have asked me early in my career, I would say, oh, I think everybody would spend the maximum they could, with whatever yeah. they're told they could spend, they would. And they just, and I don't, is that just an ingraining, do you think, Fred? I think That's so. just you what they're it. used to and it becomes their DNA? Yeah, there's a kind of, I think people get used to living a certain way. And, uh, and again, uh, travel has its uh, allure, but also travel is hard work when you get Get yeah. all the things of that sort. So, uh, again, I think people want to be comfortable. Like the caller said, it's probably the most important thing is not to have to worry about the, the future, at least your financial future. And then beyond that, I think people have lots of options, and they probably exercise them. But uh, doing a lot of things actually is more work than it is fun. So, What's your take? So I was thinking about this the other day. Um, I always felt like even when I was young, I, I understood people that are retired in the DNA of, of a of someone who was 60, whether it was 10 years ago or 15 years ago, because my dad was born in 1916. And so I always say, my brothers and I, we didn't grow up in the depression. We just feel like we did. <laughs> so I got that mentality at a much younger yeah. age than the typical person. So now you look at today's 60 year old, do you think they still have any carryover from the shadows of the depression? Would you think? I don't you know, think that, that mentality of, I well, it can maybe, all go away anytime. Yeah, like a se second generation, but it's, you don't have to do that. I, uh, to a personal side, I, I used to uh, live in Evanston. I went to lots of Cubs games. I used to pay a dollar to see a Cubs game. I went to the uh, Cubs Cardinal game where they won their 16th uh, game in a row. And, <laughs> and 
it cost sixty dollars to park. So oh, wow. uh, I mean, it, again, that 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 was kind of shocking. But uh, at the point that I'm going to the game, I want to see it, and my, my family wants to see it, and basically, who cares at that point? So again, you get you have to say, get over it. I think, but at some point, yeah. I think there is a certain get over it mentality, um, and some people can, and some people can. I remember. Uh, somebody asked Clint Atkins, you know, when he bought, bought his first jet. This was the story Spencer, I think, told me. He said at first, and, and, and if I'm wrong, I apologize, but I don't think so because it makes sense. It lines yeah. up with kind of how brains work. And Clint was a self-made person, and I don't think he grew up with money, he and Susie. And, uh, you know, he said, well, you know, at first I felt like every time I flew in the jet, I had to fill it up with friends or family yeah. <laughs> just to kind of justify it. Yeah. He said after a while, you just lose that. I mean, yeah. that goes away. Um, so I can tell you how my dad, <laughs> so here's how bad I had the depression era guilt, you know, as if I lived in the depression, my dad managed uh, Baskin clothing. Um, you may have heard this Fred, but I apologize. And, you know, back in the seventies and early eighties, you know, that was back in the retail day where around in the fall, you know, people were starting to go shop for Christmas. And on a Saturday or Sunday, it wasn't unusual to do a thousand back then uh, dollars worth of sales, you know, per if you were a decent salesperson, and we got eight percent commission. So one day I asked my dad, a friend of mine had a free ticket to the Illinois game, and Illinois wasn't that good even back then. And uh, I thought, yeah, it sounds like fun because you know if I wasn't doing that, I was a busboy, and I was always working when everybody else was having fun. And I decided, yeah, that sounds like it'd be fun for a change. So I asked my dad if I could have Saturday off to go to the game. He goes, wow. Hmm. So you would pay $80 to go to a football game? Goes, no, Dad, I got a free ticket. It's free. He goes, well, what could you have earned you know, on Saturday if you would have worked? Hmm. Well, $80? Oh, okay. Go if you want. You know. yeah. Well, he didn't even do the compounding. He could have oh, said, he didn't do the compounding. <laughs> well, what, yeah, that's right. <laughs> I would have done the compounding at this stage in my life. Uh, but uh, he wasn't going there. That's <laughs> not how his brain quite worked. But... You know, that's that kind of where you saw the right smack in the face of, to him, that's 80 bucks to go to that football game. That's not a free ticket. And <laughs> I don't know that it even had any much impact on me, but it, it allowed me to understand 20 years ago when I was a much younger person, the 60 or 65-year-old that was retiring. And I'm, I'm just starting to wonder if, in fact, I think it's fair to say that it's when we have younger clients coming in now in their 30s or 40s or 50s, I found that my sons or my son-in-law are much better with those people than yeah. I am. I, I guess I've crossed that bridge where I'm not really relating that well to the 35 or 40-year-old yeah. who's trying to accumulate money for retirement. My brain just is not quite on that level. Yeah, what I've learned here, uh, I don't do advising, but I've learned from you and uh, – uh, David and Ryan, that uh, more often uh, your advice to retired people is you could spend more <laughs> rather than spend less. I think you very seldom have to tell someone they have to cut back. Yeah, and of course I just got a text from my son-in-law, smart Alec. He said, well, did you end up going to the game? <laughs> of course I didn't go to the game after that kind of guilt. Yeah. Oh, it didn't happen. Well, think of how much. $80 in Four years ago, it must be worth. Oh, <laughs> and it literally was eight. Yeah, so was, what triple? I no, would think fair to say much more than that in forty. Uh, well, and uh, well, that was. Oh yeah, I was young. That's so that was forty years ago. Young, more than that, forty, forty-five years ago. Yeah, so you know, five, sixfold. Yeah, in, probably sixfold increase at least. Uh, so that eighty, you know, from an inflation adjustment was like turning down quite a bit more. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't think of it. Maybe my dad was thinking of the compounding yeah. in that. Um, I thought this was a good one. When it comes to investment advice, I don't know who I'm supposed to trust. And I think that is a big issue with people. Um, you feel so vulnerable uh, when you're investing and thinking about retirement. Um, oh, I have a question on the text line. I'll get, I'll get to that shortly. Uh, you, you know, that you don't know who to trust. And that could easily become an excuse. But as David Booth says, you don't have to trust anyone. Just trust the market. I, I thought... I thought that was kind of like, hey, there's a there's a bullet to it right there. It's just like you really, if you invest in stock mutual funds, for instance, over a long period of time, you're not you're really just trusting that the market will probably have a positive expected return. You really don't have to trust any particular person. But that that's right. But it's also uh, most people don't have the uh, 
wherewithal to trust the market because they don't understand. So again, you're more likely going to get someone knocking on your door or calling you saying, I have this deal for you. And that's not investing in the market. It's uh, investing in something probably not nearly as good. Yeah, I have. Yeah, you're right. Um, I have text. Um, good morning. I've been uh, I've been holding a large sum of money. My glasses are this kind of far away from me, so I'm trying to stay by the mic. I have a large uh, sum of savings to buy a hunting or recreational land. Well, good for you. That's what I'd like to do too. I've been looking for a couple of years. So have I. So I'm editorial editorializing, but can't seem to find what I'm looking for. Can't afford the parcels, and they've certainly gone up like everything else. Assets. There's been some asset inflation, and that's gone along with it. Uh, should I keep that money in a savings or invest the majority of it? I'm going crazy thinking about the money I've lost keeping it in savings. Well, if, you know, my rule is if you're going to need it in the next five years, it doesn't belong in the stock market. What say you, Fred? Probably so, but I, I would assume that the uh, hunting land is not uh, putting food on the table. So, I mean, you could you might be able to take a risk. But in, in That's his, a good point. In his case, though, it's easy to say, you should have bought the land five years ago, or you should have invested it five years ago. And now the question is, what about going forward? But clearly, uh, I think investing it is, is a probably a good idea, but also with the recognition that uh, you may lose some of it. So again, if it depends how essential your goal is of buying the farmland. So, or right. The, the, so if you <laughs> depends how big of a priority is. If it's a, it's going to kill me if I don't get far. It's just going to ruin my life, so to speak. Yeah. If I don't, that's always been my dream. And if I don't accomplish it, it's going to be. You know, I need. I know I need a minimum of X dollars. Yeah. You can't put that at risk. But if you say, you know what, if I had to wait an extra three years, or if I had to buy something half as big, I might be happy. Then what I would do is probably make a down payment on investing in something that has higher expected return. And really, it's not going to come from bonds right now. It's, you're talking about a stock index fund of some sort. And then maybe just dollar cost average some of the yeah. money in there, too. So let's just say that was $100,000. Maybe I put twenty five or 30000 in today before 3 o'clock. And then every month between now and when I buy the place, if the market goes down, I'm going to end up, you know, I'm going to put 1000 a month in until I buy my place. And then you get a little bit of insulation, though not perfect. You could still walk into a very ugly situation where you don't have enough money to buy. And yet you find the risk is you find that dream parcel, and because of a market decline, you don't have enough, and you have to make a decision quickly. Well, this is sort of investing in a microcosm because there's no way to insulate yourself against everything. You'd say, well, I'm going to put it in a, in a fixed income, and I'll have that ready. But the farmland or the hunting land may be going up at five percent a year, so. Uh, saying I'm going to save enough, I have enough in three years to buy it. Well, when you get to three years, it may be a lot more expensive. So there's no, there's no easy answer here. You have to either take a risk of uh, of investing it, hoping it keeps up, and the, the downside is it may not keep up. The other thing is maybe buy property that, that uh, you can't afford right now and, but, and take a loan and then pay that down. But again, that's a risk. So there's no easy answer here. So we're, we never really eliminate risk, do we? We're, no. we're really just always trading one risk off against another. And I think people have a hard time thinking about it in that way. Yeah. And now that you mentioned, you know, you say it that way you did, and that's what hit me is we're just managing different risk. We're not eliminating risk. We're yeah. just choosing how much of which one we want. I mean, there's no way to say I, I want to buy X piece of farmland five years from now I'm going to put some money in the in the investment, and that that will guarantee that I'll be able to buy it in five years. You may be able to buy one and a half times that amount. You may be able to buy uh, half of it. So you, you, there's no way of knowing for and sure. If you want to speculate a little more and yeah. say, well, you know what, I, I I really would like to hedge myself. Well, maybe a real estate investment trust, which you can buy a publicly traded index mutual fund of real estate. Vanguard has one. It's not going to correlate perfectly to the type of land you're talking about. It may be office buildings, and but there's probably REITs, if you did research, that have – I wouldn't be surprised if there's REITs that have developmental land yeah. and, and, and that type of thing. You might – might like you said, you're, just, you're always trading off Well, this. the other way is simply go ahead and buy it, and, and, and assuming, assuming you can get a loan uh, – you're buying it, you don't have enough money to pay for it, and you'll pay for it over the next so many years. Again, that's risky, but at least you'll, you'll be going in the right direction. Hey, we did get a text before that one that said, again, that special car when you're younger might have, uh, might have produced a host of happy memories. Uh, well, that's always a possibility. Sure. I want to keep this a G-rated show, though. <laughs> <You know. laughs> yeah, so it's, uh, I think that's, you know, people that listen to this show, I think maybe one good takeaway today is, 
when you're thinking of all these trade-off, when you want to, uh, if you have a goal of something in the future, how to invest or fund that, there is no magic pill. Everything is a probability associated mm -hmm. with it. If we invest it all in the stock market, there's a chance five years from now I'll have less than the dollar I put in. Uh, you can get a sense of how much less, you know, if you look at the data. Um, if you invest in fixed income, I might not produce enough return to keep up with those prices. But, or if I retire, it's the same thing in retirement, you know, what's my asset allocation going to be at age 40 or at age 50 or at age 60? There's trade-offs. Um, obviously, if you become more conservative in your 40s and you have less money in the stock market, chances are you are reducing what your retirement right. could be. But at the same time, it's not a perfect guarantee. It may actually, during that your particular lifetime draw, that might be the essential thing to do. Right. So I don't think, I think people can not feel guilty for not knowing what to do, but think in terms of probabilities or what are the yeah. chances something might happen? Right. What are the chances that land can continue to go up five or 10% a year? What are the chances of a stock market at 35,000 in the Dow over the next three years? You know, it's a, it's a, you know, with each year between you and the goal, yeah. feel more comfortable investing more of a down payment uh, in the stock market, I think is, is fair to say. But I, I love the idea, Fred, that to approach things is you're never eliminating risk. You're just, you're trading one risk for another. And I think that would serve people well. Even people when it comes to their, you know, people think about, I want to be safe, so I'm going to buy CDs. Well, CD, if you were living off CD income over the last 10 years or 20 years, suddenly you're, you see your income stream go down 90%. I don't think that's risk-free either. And I think it pays to look back at all of our strategies and say, okay, what, what are, okay which, which risk are we more comfortable with? Which one's more important? That's what we do every day when it comes to clients' goals. We're just trying to get a really good understanding of where they really want, what's the most important factors of that goal, and then the best way to fund them. Well, Dr. Fred Gertz, thanks for being on the show today. Um, why don't you really help me today? And I'll be back. We'll be back, I think, in a couple of weeks for more of Paul Rudy's On the Money Radio Show. Have a great week, people. Join us for the second and fourth Tuesday of each month for Paul Rudy's On the Money. Views expressed represent those of the guests and do not.